0: Well, welcome. (laughs) To Grumlaw, we are so glad that you are here with us today. Particularly if this is your first time with us, uh, we're so glad you decided to, you know, walk through our doors. You overcame those fears and you, and you walked through our doors. So honestly, thank you, thank you, thank you for making Grumlaw a part of your week. As most of you have already probably figured out, because you all are smart people, we are in the series right now called "I Don't Understand What I Do." In fact, this morning we are entering into part four of seven, which means if you have missed any of the first three parts of the series, I would really encourage you to go to Grumlaw.com/messages. And get yourself caught up there. You can listen to the messages there. You can watch the messages there. Or as always, you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. Now, the basis for the series uh, is pretty simple. But just in case you haven't been here for the last couple weeks, we'll get you caught up to speed. Or maybe you have been here. But as soon as I step onto the stage, it's like your cue to bust out your phone and start doing some online shopping. But that doesn't hurt my feelings. That's okay. Uh, the premise of the series is really, really simple. It's, it's why do we all as in literally every single one of us, because I I promise you, this isn't just a Christian-y thing. Uh, This isn't just a churchy thing. This happens to be a human being thing. Why do we do things that we don't want to do? And and why don't we do the things that that we know we probably ought to do? Why would any of us ever make a decision that we know is going to lead to regret? What, What is it inside of us that makes it so incredibly difficult to say no in certain situations? and say yes in other situations the question that we've really been teasing out throughout this series is this is why do we hold on to things why do we hold on to things that are holding us back Why would we make decisions that we know are certainly not what is best for us and definitely not what is best for the people around us? And as I've said throughout the series, it's one of the things that I absolutely love about this content because again, this isn't Christian stuff, this isn't churchy stuff, this is human being make you better at life stuff. Even in fact, if you never decide to actually put your faith in Jesus, even if you never embrace the stuff that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, even if you never wear that label of Christian, you still ought to implement this stuff into your life because undeniably. It will make your life better and it will make you better at life. And so what we've been doing throughout this series and what we're going to continue to do this this morning is explore these sins. And I know some of us aren't totally comfortable using that word yet, but explore these sins, these things that seem to so easily beset us. These sins that are holding us back not only from where God wants to take us, because some of you might not really care about that yet but holding you back from where actually you ultimately want to be, again, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And today we're going to explore a topic that, if I'm honest, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me as a child but it sure makes a whole lot more sense to me as an adult, allow me to explain. Uh, growing up, my dad, uh, he was a motivational speaker. That's what he did for a living. We would travel uh, with him in the summer in particular, but all throughout the year, he, he would go to camps and conferences and retreats where he would speak to audiences ranging from like a couple hundred people all the way to like tens of thousands of people. Uh, and as his family in the summer, we got to travel with him, which was awesome because we got to see most of the United States, most of the North America, in fact, because of what my dad did for a living. And all throughout the summer, we wouldn't be home very much, but we loved it because in the day when my dad was like speaking at these different things my mom would just kind of take us on field trips and we got to see all this sweet stuff and we'd come back after summer vacation and our friends would be like yeah we went to Florida for a week and I was like man we went to Florida and we went to California we went to North Dakota we could tell them all these sweet things that we did so it was a really really good experience but I gotta be honest on just about every single one of those trips and I've shared a little bit about this before on just about every single one of those trips there'd be at least a couple of times where we as like siblings I, I have three siblings we'd look at each other and we'd be like what's up with dad What's what's got him so ticked off? Why is Dad so angry? Now, fast forward to present day, and I have two children. Let, let's just be honest about something: as the adult going on family vacations, not that fun i mean like there's moments where you're like yeah that was a good time but for the most part right you're doing it for your kids you get back and you're like yeah i think i'm ready for a vacation this time i'm not going to take my children because it can actually be relaxing you come home and you're actually far more tired than when you left and so i look back at that and i'm like yeah of course my dad was angry from time to time of course he was irritable what's so fun about packing your kids up and going through like you know security at the airport or you know, you're on a road trip and you know, you're 30 minutes into the trip and one kid's already like, I have to go to the bathroom. You're like, are you kidding me? Did you already down that two liter of Mountain Dew? That's, that's fantastic. It's actually surprising he didn't get more angry. It's kind of interesting what gets people angry. For some people, it, it takes like some pretty big things, significant things to get them angry. And then other people, it, it takes virtually nothing at all to kind of you know push their buttons and tick them off. Um, uh, several years ago, I was working in medical sales and uh, I was also a trainer for the company. So they'd have me flying all over the place to, to train new reps. Uh, And so spent a fair amount of time in airports. And I remember several years ago, and some of you might recall this as well, when they were just kind of rolling out Wi-Fi on planes, right? Like, that's crazy. I don't know how the heck they figured that out. But again, there's Wi-Fi in an airplane. I mean, like, we just take that for granted now, but it was kind of unbelievable. And apparently, or so the lady told us on the plane, we were one of the first flights uh, that was offering Wi-Fi. In fact, this little thing came in on the speaker. It's like, ding, we are pleased to announce that this, this 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 flight now offers Wi-Fi on uh, when you're up at you know whatever they say that, like you know how high you have to be in the sky and so we're sitting there we're like oh that's pretty sweet and I'm sitting next to another guy that was traveling for business and we're kind of looking at each other like dang that's nuts they figured out now once we got to the proper altitude they indicate okay pull out your electronic devices you want to take advantage of the Wi-Fi go for it and so we pull out our credit cards we couldn't have been more eager to drop 18 bucks on some Wi-Fi like we could have cared less right it was like they got Wi-Fi in a plane I'm gonna check this out so we're both sitting there we both enter our credit card information and then you just get that wheel of death that's just like. <laughs> it's not working. And so we call, you know, we hit the button, the stewardess comes over, we're like, "Hey, it doesn't seem to be working." They're like, "Oh, no problem." Like, you know, we're still trying to kind of figure the kinks out of this. And so they go and they say they're going to unplug it and plug it back in. Apparently, that works up in the sky as well. <laughs> so I go do that and they they plug it back in and still we're just getting the little wheel and so finally a little thing again comes on thing they they indicate that Uh, They're not going to be able to make the Wi-Fi work for this particular flight. And again, they're still kind of working out the kinks. And I'm just kind of like, oh, well. But the guy next to me literally takes his laptop. He slams it shut, like so hard, in fact, that I'm like, I think you might have just broke it. And then he says the words. He says the F word. He says, this is bleeping ridiculous. And it took everything in me not to start laughing. I'm like, you didn't know this existed 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Like, how are you getting so angry about this right now? Like, literally, it wasn't like you were getting on the plane anticipating and you were going to be able to use Wi-Fi. Like, you didn't know this existed. You acknowledged that to me. Some of us, you know, have gotten really good, frankly, at hiding our anger, whereas others of us, like the gentleman that I was flying to next to that day, uh, you just kind of wear your anger on your sleeve. Anger, as we have all experienced at different times in our lives, can really cause us to lose our minds, to not think straight, to to lash out on people that frankly don't deserve any of the lashing out. Uh, It causes us to say things that we would otherwise never let come flying out of our mouths. Not to mention that if you call yourself a Jesus follower, anger is just wrong. In in, in fact, we have countless examples throughout this book that we refer to as the Bible where it very clearly lays out and says, hey, anger probably isn't the best thing for you. Let let me give you just a couple examples of this. Uh, In Paul's letter, Paul's the guy that wrote better than like half of the New Testament. Uh, He writes a letter to the Ephesians, this early church in Ephesus. He has this to say. He says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. So Paul, okay, it seemed good enough for him. We got to get anger out of our lives. And another example in the book of James, James being the brother of Jesus, he has this to say about anger. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So we better get anger out of our lives. Otherwise we won't have the righteousness that God desires. I mean, that seems good enough. In another one of Paul's letters, he says this, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language you get the idea I mean I could keep going on here but the interesting thing is as you read verse after verse after verse after verse about anger and getting anger out of our lives it kind of makes you a little bit angry because we all know right like it's not something that is just that easy I, I don't think I probably need to spend any time this morning convincing you all that anger probably isn't the best thing for our lives again whether you call yourself a Christian or not like you know that to be true but it's one of those things that seems a little bit far-fetched how are we supposed to just not be angry. It's not something that we can just turn off. In fact, if that was the case, I'm pretty confident that every single one of us would have flipped that switch by now. Now, I suppose, uh, like we've seen throughout the series, that we could take some level of comfort knowing that this isn't a new problem for human beings, this isn't like some 21st century American issue, people have struggled with this since the beginning of time, even those people that you would look to in your life and probably think of as like spiritual giants, even the people that you look up to, even the people throughout the course of history that seem closer to God really than anyone else, everybody struggles with anger from time to time, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back in time a little bit, back to the Old Testament in fact, for those of you that don't know, the Bible's kind divided into two sections. We have the Old Testament and then we have the New Testament. The Old Testament documents everything from like the creation of the world, the whole creation story, where, where God breathed life into the world and suddenly, you know, human beings and animals and creatures, all that stuff was kind of birth, and then all the way right up to the time where Jesus steps foot onto the earth, at which point the New Testament picks up and it documents Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, and the rise of the early Christian church. But one of the main topics, one of the main themes in, in the midst of the Old Testament in that first half of the Bible is this covenant that was made between God and his chosen people, these people known as the Israelites. Now, the Israelites, if you ever read this stuff for yourself, and I'd recommend you reading it for yourself, the Israelites had this kind of knack for, for weighing and swaying away from God, where, where they would wander, and then they would be punished, and they'd be, they'd be so quick to forget their lesson, and, and then they'd do it all over again. It was kind of kind of this constant cycle of wandering away from God, and then God kind of bringing them back in. Now, one of those punishments that they received as a result of wandering from him at one point, it was a big one, uh, they were Slaves under the Egyptians for hundreds and hundreds of years under the oppression of the Egyptians. But eventually, God does indeed hear their cry and against all the odds, he actually leads them out of Egypt and under rule from Pharaoh. It's it's the whole story of God kind of parting the Red Sea with Moses and they pass through on dry ground. But no sooner do they get through the Red Sea, they find themselves out in the middle of the, des- the desert and they almost immediately start complaining against God all over again. In fact, they even set up idols and start worshiping other gods. And God's looking at this like, Are you kidding me? How quick are you to forget this stuff? You were literally slaves under the Egyptians for hundreds of years. And so as a form of punishment, God asks them and forces them to wander around aimlessly in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 plus years. Now, after that time has passed, he makes good on his promise and eventually he begins to lead them into this thing that they call the promised land, the place that they were finally gonna be able to settle down, call their own place, generation after generation, that would be home for the Israelites, God's chosen people. And that's about right there where we're gonna pick up the story. Today. We're going to find this in Numbers chapter 22. And very quickly, the Israelites are beginning to gain this reputation that they are unstoppable. Because in order to get to the promised land, they had to go through other kingdoms, they had to go through other cities. And it didn't matter the size of the opposing armies, it did not matter how well trained, how strong they were, the Israelites always seemed to win. And the next place kind of on their hit list, so to speak, uh, was the, the kingdom known as Moab, the Moabites. The Moabites were led by a guy that goes by the name of Balak, and Balak was not ready to just roll over. He wasn't keen on the idea that the Israelites were just gonna come in and ransack the place, but he recognized that something bigger was at play. He was buying into this, okay, God must be with them. Otherwise, how do they continue to win these battles? And so he comes up with a pretty genius idea. He says, okay, if God is for them and that's why they're winning these fights, maybe I can get God to go against them and then maybe the Moabites will remain victorious. And so he summons the most godly man in the entire kingdom among all the Moabites, a guy that goes by the name of Balaam. Now, I don't know what was the deal with like Bala, like starting these guys' names. That can get a little confusing, but Balak the king and then Balaam the man of God. And he sends some messengers out to. Balaam and he's like okay come back to me and I want you to put a curse on the Israelites then maybe we won't be defeated by them. But Balaam, being true to fashion and because he had a love for God, as soon as he gets this request, he says, okay, I'll consider it, but I'm going to go talk to God first. And so he does just that. He goes and asks God, okay, hey, can I put a curse on the Israelites? And God very clearly tells him, absolutely not. These are my chosen people. So he delivers that message back to Balak and Balak does not take no for an answer. He's the king after all. He is used to people telling him yes. And so he continues to send more messengers. And every time he sends more messengers, he sends more gifts and gold and promises of prosperity. Every single time Balaam's getting a little bit more enticed and he continues to go back to God and ask God the same question over and over again until finally God says fine you want to go back to Balak you you, want to go back to the king and be showered with with gifts more power to you but you're going to look like a fool when you get there because I'm not changing my mind on this I am not going to allow you to place a curse on the Israelites but Balaam nonetheless wants to go and that's where we pick up our story here this morning it says this Uh, Balaam got up in the morning, Saddled his donkey, and he went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Again, it's, it's important to note, if you read this stuff for yourself, a couple verses earlier, God actually does grant him permission. But again, he grants him permission because he kept asking over and over again. So as soon as he sets out on this journey, God opposes him. As it says there, God was upset. God was, God was actually angry with Balaam. But Balaam, and this is an important note here, he wanted to go. He loved all of the attention that he was receiving. He wanted to get all of these things that Balak was promising him. He he loved the fact that at this point, he was finally the hero of the story. Following God up to this point in his life was not the cool thing, but suddenly he's receiving all this attention and he loves it. And so he keeps going back to God, asking the same question over and over and over again, something God very, very clearly already gave him the answer to. Don't ask God, Don't ask God to respond to questions. He has already answered. Parents, you hate it when your kids do this to you. My daughter is like squarely in this this stage right now. She's three years old and there's nothing worse in her mind than going to bed. And so typically at night, what happens is I get her ready for bed. She's starting to sense like, oh, crud, it's bedtime. He just put me in pajamas. Oh, crud, he's brushing my teeth now. It's definitely near. And so she does everything that she can possibly do to procrastinate. And typically this this manifests itself by about two minutes before it's time to go to bed. She's brushed her teeth. She's in her PJs. She went to the bathroom. She'll look at me with the sweetest little eyes. And I'm sorry, I literally have the cutest daughter known to mankind. And she will look up at me and she'll say, dada. And I'll say, yes, sweetie. Can I have a snack? I'm like, no, sweetie, you can't have a snack. We just brushed your teeth. Like it's time for bed. You we we just gave you a snack, in fact. Like, no, no, no snack. And she looked back at me, Dada, can I have a snack? And I'm like That's the same question and the answer is still no. No, you cannot have a snack and this goes on and on and her voice gets a little bit louder and a little bit squealier and it gets escalated and it goes on until it finally ends with me grabbing my daughter by the arms in a very gentle, loving way saying, Logan, there is nothing you can say, there is nothing you could do in this moment right now for me to grant you permission to have a snack. You're not getting a snack, be quiet, don't ask again. She always asks again like almost immediately afterwards because this is what kids do. Growing up, uh, my mom was an organic health food nut. Uh, In fact, she was like way ahead of the trend. You all think it's like cool now to eat organic food. My mom was like still going to a co-op when we were growing up. We'd go to a person's house and like all these people would congregate, all these weirdos that wanted to eat gross food. (laughs) And you go there and you like it already pitched in your money. It was like a drug deal going down. You go away with your cliff bars and fruit leather. It was freaking gross. We hated co-op day because it meant we were getting more gross food in the house. And uh, the only unhealthy thing that we had in our house, truthfully, growing up, uh, was a 12-pack of Pepsi. There was always a 12-pack of Pepsi. Now my mom tried her best to get my dad to drink organic sodas and sodas that were supposedly good for you. Uh, there's a reason that pop is bad for you, because it tastes good. All the ones that are good for you are disgusting. And so my dad, that was like the one like bit of like good tasting things that he actually 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 held on to there's this 12 pack of Pepsi and every once in a while uh, every day in fact I I would actually walk by this 12 pack of Pepsi in the garage on the way home from school but every once in a while I would go in the house and I would start asking my mom for a Pepsi and 99.9% of the time the answer was no but I'd try to bribe her I'd be like mom I'll vacuum the house if I can have a Pepsi and she'd be like nope I'd be like hey mom I will unload the dishwasher if you let me have a Pepsi she's like you're gonna do that anyway but no (laughs) mom and I would go on this list, and, and I would ask her over and over. If I was set on it, I, I wanted to get the yes. And every once in a while, like maybe once every two months, my mom would concede. Every once in a while, she'd be like, fine, go get a Pepsi. And I'd run out there. I'd crack that thing. I'd basically shotgun it because I'd drink it so fast. I mean, I couldn't get enough of getting that Pepsi. It was so good. Like, I wanted the Pepsi. Now, did my mom in that moment, like, change her mind? Did she suddenly recognize that that Pepsi is healthy? No, uh, of course not. She was just tired of her fourth grade son driving her nuts asking about a Pepsi. And this is exactly what we see here with Balaam. He keeps asking God the same question over and over and over again. The same question that God has already answered. Don't ask God stupid questions. Don't ask him questions that you already know full well the answer to. Don't ask him questions where he has already told you the answer. Just as God sometimes will deny our prayers out of love, He will grant our prayers out of wrath. Yes, God gets angry, but it's important to differentiate that there are a couple different types of anger. There's righteous anger and there's sinful anger. Righteous anger and sinful anger. Righteous anger, as most of you probably know, is is a reactive emotion of anger over mistreatment, insult, or malice. It's akin to a sense of injustice. It doesn't lead to sin, but instead it leads to redemptive action. Some of you probably have examples floating around in your head right now of righteous anger. I get righteously angry when I hear about sex trafficking. It drives me nuts. It's something that just like my blood boils. I want to find those people that, that take advantage of young girls and do not so nice things to them. In fact, it's, it's why we as a church, it's a huge reason why we fully fund a border station between Nepal and India. For those of you that don't know that, uh, this church fully funds a border station. It's about $24,000 a year. Uh, it's not. It's a lot of money, especially for, for a church plant. But we felt that that was like, hey, this is something that we want to sink our teeth into. Because every single day, because of your dollars, eight to ten women are saved from being trafficked literally daily like that's pretty fantastic right I get righteously angry when I hear about that I get righteously angry when I'm mindlessly scrolling on Facebook and I hear about a parent mistreating their children I I, I get righteously angry when I see legislators and lawmakers celebrating late-term abortion I I I get I get righteously angry when somebody would try to convince me that Qdoba is better than Chipotle <laughs> uh, that one's a joke There's a difference between righteous and sinful anger. Sinful anger on the other hand is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure or hostility. It leads to revenge and ultimately 100% of the time it leads to sin. Sinful anger are the times when your wife comes home and she's spent what you feel to be too much money on clothes and so you bring up something that you guys argued about back in college to get back at her. Sinful anger is when you punch the wall because your team got knocked out of the tournament. So sinful anger is that that emotion that you feel when somebody cuts you off on your way to work, so you speed ahead of them and and throw that gesture out the window that really isn't good for anyone. Righteous anger points to God. Sinful anger points to me. And and this week, as as you probably figured, we're going to be focusing on sinful anger. And now that's kind of twofold. One, because we don't really have time to focus on both. But two, I don't think any of you probably have a righteous anger problem. In fact, I'm not really sure that that's even something that exists. It seems a little bit oxymoronic. But some of us, some more frequently than others, can let our anger get the best of us. And this is what we're about to see here with Balaam. God tried to save Balaam the trouble of what was coming to him by telling him not to go. He saw, wouldn't you know it, what going with the Moabites was going to lead to, and he tried to prevent him from doing so. Wouldn't you know it, God had his best interest in mind. Which brings us to something that, that most of us probably would not like to admit, but deep down I think we all know is true. Go to the next slide there, Jason. Haven't most of your problems been created by saying yes to things that you knew you shouldn't do in the first place? Haven't most of the issues in your life been created because you said yes to things that, let's be honest, you knew to begin with were probably not a good idea? Think about that. Just about all the issues that you experience are because you said yes to something that you knew was a bad idea to begin with. Your conscience told you so before it ever happened. This past summer, I, I had the privilege of marrying a couple that I've known for a couple of years now. Really, you know, gotten to know them and uh, leading up to their their, their wedding, uh, we did some premarital coaching and, you know, talked about some things and had an opportunity to just kind of like share some of the things that I've gleaned through, you know, eight years of marriage and uh, one of the things that came up kind of right in the middle of those sessions that we were doing, uh, you, you could see literally the expression in, in the soon-to-be husband's face change was one of the things that came up is that the, the bride had invited an ex-boyfriend to the wedding. And she was justifying it by saying, hey, you know, like he's a family friend and, you know, it'd be weird if he wasn't there. He's always kind of been a part of my life. Well, as I dug more, I'm like, okay, surely there's more to this story. I was like, okay, but what happened with him? And, and wouldn't you know it, there's some things that happened sexually that made him really uncomfortable with, with having him there. And she sat there and kind of pleaded her case why this was okay. And I said, okay, okay, okay. listen, you guys, we know each other. I mean, we know each other pretty well at this point. And I looked at her and I said, I want you to look me in the eye right now and tell me that if roles were reversed, that if he was inviting an ex-girlfriend to this wedding where things had happened sexually between the two of them, that you would be totally okay with that. You would have no qualms with it. I mean, throw all your arguments to the side right now. You're telling me that you would be okay with that? And there was like a pause, and she looked at me, and she looked at him, and then she conceded, well, no, I I wouldn't be okay with that. And I said, then what in the heck are we talking about? Most of your problems have been created by saying yes to things that you knew were not a good idea in the first place. God, wouldn't you know it, whether you believe this or not, really does want what is best for us. In fact, he knows what is best for us. It's in fact why he gave every single one of you a conscience. And a conscience is something that you are born with. It's not something that is handed off to you on becoming a Christian. It's a human being thing. We all have a conscience. Isn't it crazy, though, how arrogant we can be? Pushing through with our agenda, our desires, even though our conscience, even though our creator is very clearly telling us to go in a different direction. When our minds are set on doing what we want to do, we will push through almost violently, despite the obstacles that even after the fact, God may lay in our paths. It continues. It says, Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. So for whatever reason, this donkey can see this this angel of the Lord, but but Balaam cannot. And so he does what comes natural to him in this situation when his his donkey begins to misbehave. He starts to, out of anger, beat his donkey. Now again, remember, when your conscience is already ticking in a different direction, when you know you're already doing something that you probably shouldn't do, aren't you a little bit more irritable? Aren't you in those moments kind of like already a little bit high strung? And so that's exactly what's going on here with Balaam. So as soon as this donkey goes in a different direction, he ticks and he starts beating the donkey. It says, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. This story is hilarious because it's so incredibly applicable to our lives. Like, can you imagine being in this moment? Like, you're already ticked off because the donkey seems to be intoxicated. But now, as you're riding along, things are kind of compounding. It presses his foot against the wall, crushing his foot. So he's like, gosh dang, it's like you stubbing your toe after you're doing something that you know you shouldn't do. You get even more ticked off. And so what does he do again? The natural response again, he begins to beat the donkey. All Balaam wants to do at this point is get to the king and be showered with gifts. Be told how great he is. Instead, he begins to take out this anger on on this donkey, this donkey that, again, seems dead set on not getting him to where he wants to be. Isn't it really interesting how bad things seem to compound, how bad things seem to add up in our lives when we go in a direction that we're not supposed to be going in? When when those of you that are Jesus followers, when we oppose God, when we literally do the complete opposite of what we know we ought to do, don't, don't get angry when bad things happen after God already told you to go in a different direction. I I have seen this so many times in my relatively short life. People make these big life decisions, career changes, buying homes, and, and they know that God is asking them. I mean, literally sometimes they'll verbally say it. They know God is asking them to go in a certain direction, but yet they follow through with their desires and then they're surprised when it doesn't work out. Really? You're surprised that God's way was best? You're your creator who knit you together in your mother's womb. You're your creator who literally has the hairs on your head numbered. You're your creator who loves you so much that he sent his one and his only son to die for you. You're surprised that God, that his way was the best way and your way doesn't seem to be working out so well. And it's not just with the big decisions in life. We see this with the big, we see this with the little, how you handle your finances, the car you really want versus the car that you actually need, where you go on vacation, whether or not you serve at church, whether you get home and you turn on the TV or you actually sit down and spend some quality time with your children. Don't get angry when bad things happen, when God already told you to go in a different direction. It's not God's fault. Even worse, when we're going down these paths, we'll cry out to God and we'll say to things to him like, oh my gosh, God, I can't believe this is happening. Why are you picking on me? Where are you? And he's looking back at you going, are you kidding me? I told you not to do this. I told you this was a terrible idea. You knew the way that you should go. And now you're blaming me. And not surprisingly, it leads to frustration. It leads to anger. And oftentimes it's misdirected anger at God, at the people around us. And we fail to look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize, oh yeah, I am the one that created this problem. It says, then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right Or to the left, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry, and he beat it with his staff. I mean, it just keeps getting worse for poor old Balaam here, and not for a second has he considered, you know what, maybe this is going really poorly right now because I didn't listen to God. No, instead, like most of us, his anger completely consumes him, and all he can think about is how he is going to get back at this stupid donkey. It's all the donkey's fault. And listen to this, it says, then, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, okay, and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? That's right, guys. We got a talking donkey now. It's like some real life Shrek stuff going on here, okay? The donkey's speaking. Now, for some of you, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail right now, but it's a rabbit trail worth going down. For some of you, it's stories like these that actually this is precisely, or at least it's the reason that you cite. This is why you just write scripture off. Because you get to stories like this and you're like, okay, come on. This is the kind of stuff that I tell to my five-year-old before they go to bed. You're trying to tell me that a donkey actually began to speak? Whether you believe this actually happened or not is a moot point. Because the point of the story is not to convince you that donkeys talk. The purpose of the story, there is a purpose behind her. There is a lesson to be learned, which to reiterate, again, is not to convince you that donkeys sometimes communicate. Furthermore, if you're a person that's sitting here and and you use stories like this, or, or, or maybe you cite bigger instances, like you say, oh, there's no evidence for a worldwide flood. And you use stories, particularly things out of the Old Testament, to write off all of scripture, to write off all of Christianity as a whole. That is so incredibly lazy, You can learn lessons from things whether you believe it to be fiction or not. So even if you don't think the donkey actually opened his mouth, again, is a moot point. I learn lessons when I'm sitting with my kids watching Pixar movies. I watch Toy Story a lot with my kids. And just about every single time I watch that movie, I'm like, dang, there's something I can apply to my life. And to be clear, I don't believe that that, that toys come alive when I exit the room. So here's the rub. If you can't get past certain parts of biblical stories, in particular, and let's be honest, they're usually from the Old Testament because of a certain detail, like a talking donkey, chances are you are getting hung up on a detail that has nothing to do with the main part of the story anyway. Don't write off Jesus because you can't get past a talking donkey. Whether you believe the donkey spoke or not makes no difference. Don't let the minor things take away from the main thing. Now, Back, if the donkey did speak, and I actually happen to think that the donkey did speak because it says here that that God caused this to happen. And I believe that, that God can pull off just about anything. I think our human lives are our credit to that in and of themselves. We look all around us. God's creation is everywhere. So if donkey said, suddenly started talking because God made it happen, I believe it. Maybe I'm naive. But if I'm in Balaam's shoes in these situations... I'm blown away, right? I mean, a donkey just started talking. I'm probably left speechless, but listen to what Balaam has to say. Balaam answered the donkey. He didn't just like speechless. He's like, all right, I got a reply for you. You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Again, a conversation going on with a donkey. He completely overlooks the fact that a donkey is talking to him. He's so engulfed in his anger in this moment that all he can think about is revenge. All he can think about is how this donkey is being such a pain in the a- See what I did there? <laughs> donkey humor. Now, but seriously, isn't that so fitting for our own lives? We get so clouded by our anger that we don't really even think. We're not even aware of what's going on around us. It's in these moments that we can make such fools of ourselves. We can say things, we can do things that that, that, that cause such destruction in our lives and in the lives around us. The story concludes by saying this. It says, the donkey said to Balaam, again, the donkey's still talking. Uh, Now he's reasoning actually with Balaam. Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Have I ever done anything like this for you before? Ever lay on you? Ever crush your leg against a wall? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and he fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Again, he's going blatantly in the opposite direction that God had asked him. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If I had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, I did not realize. I did not realize you were standing on the road to oppose me. Balaam's eyes were opened. He didn't realize the angel was even standing there. And this isn't the most profound, you know, point That you're ever going to hear in a talk, but when our anger takes over, it's like we're living with our eyes closed. We're, we're, we're like little kids, you know, just at the pinata. We're, we're just going around the world swinging, making sure that everybody understands how angry we really are. We are completely unaware of our anger, we are completely unaware of our sin, we're completely unaware of the destruction that we are causing. In Matthew chapter 20, for, for those of you that don't know, the, the first four books of the second half of the Bible are called, again, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They document Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And they all basically tell the exact same story, but just from four different perspectives. And in Matthew's account, uh, he, he tells of one particular event this is a true story, a real thing that happened where Jesus was traveling along with his disciples. And as would often occur, wherever Jesus went with his disciples, these huge crowds would develop. The, the, these people would be following Jesus around like he couldn't go anywhere in privacy because he performed one miracle he started opening his mouth and because how he communicated it was so incredibly compelling these massive crowds would gather around him and on one such occasion him and his disciples they're traveling along there's a big crowd and everybody's really leaning in because again there's no microphones they don't have any megaphones you know Jesus is talking and everybody's trying to lean in hearing what Jesus has to say but the entire time it's really really distracting because there's these two guys that are following behind them going Jesus Jesus Jesus. And they're trying to get Jesus's attention and it's driving everybody else nuts. They're going, shut up, be quiet. We're trying to hear what this guy had to say. This isn't about you. This is about him. Be quiet. But nonetheless, they don't relent. They continue to say his name. They continue to try to get his attention. But finally, Jesus stops and he looks at him, probably much to the delight of the crowd, because they're probably convinced in this moment that Jesus is going to like, look at him and be like, be quiet. Stop saying my name. Relax. Shut up in fact, he says this, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Both of the men were blind. And now all the eyes are are, are fixed on Jesus. They're all looking at him and they're going, okay, is he annoyed? Is he irritated? Is he upset? How's he gonna respond? And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't actually say a word. It says in Jesus being moved with. And I'm telling you, if you were in the crowd that day, You would have filled that blank with anger, frustration, irritability, wrath, rage, annoyance, exasperation. But in typical Jesus fashion, that's not what he says. It says in Jesus being moved with, everybody say that word with me, compassion. Hmm. Touched their eyes and straight away they received their sight and they followed him. Compassion. It's really, really challenging to be angry when you are so filled with compassion. When, when you look at other people through the same lens that Jesus sees them. When, when we so understand what Jesus has done for every single one of us, including every single person that sits here today, how he's given each and every one of us the opportunity to no longer be blind, to live lives that are free of sin, that are free of destruction, to live lives where we're no, no longer completely consumed and bound by our sin. When you're moved to a life following Jesus, no longer are you filled with anger and the things of your flesh, but instead, compassion. Jesus takes us away from what comes so naturally to us, which let's be honest, a lot of the times is anger, and he moves us towards what comes so natural to him, compassion. See, once the men, as you saw there, once they received their sight, they didn't just say thanks and run off. They didn't just celebrate and go back to their families. It says they followed Jesus. When you understand What Jesus has done for you, the great lengths that he has gone to, not to pay you back, but to win you back. You don't just say thanks and move along. It's impossible to just live life as usual. You see no other option but to follow Jesus. And when we understand the steps that Jesus took, not just for you, but the you's around you, when you understand how much he loves the people to the left and to your right and in front and behind you, you too are moved to compassion rather than anger. L- like we've been talking about in this series, these, these, these sins, that seems to so frequently appear in every single one of our lives, they are next to impossible to conquer on our own. In fact, it's why they're so widespread. It's why when we say we're talking about anger, we see universally every head nod and go, yep, I've dealt with that. Because if you haven't noticed, most of the people in our world are not Jesus followers. And it's why we make excuses for these sins that are so rampant in our lives. It's why we say things like, oh, that's just who they are. That's just them, they're never gonna get better because on your own, as you have probably learned, as I have learned in my life, it is impossible to conquer this stuff on your own. It's only by seeing the world through Jesus's eyes that we can begin to conquer this stuff and in turn, not only will our lives be better for it, but the lives of all the people around us as well. Compassion over anger.